Right, today we're reading uh, Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you ca- we came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on your head, on our head, if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Hi, everyone. Good to be with you. My name's Mike, if I haven't met you before. And uh, it's great to be able to... Uh, open up God's Word together in Joshua chapter, Joshua chapter 2. Bit of an interesting chapter, isn't it? And maybe completely foreign to, and you're thinking, what is going on? Or you may be aware of this passage, but 
um, aren't sure what to make of it. Wherever you are, let's, uh, let's uh, ask God to help us to uh, wrestle with this passage and think about what it uh, means for us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together, uh, that we can sing uh, praises to you, that we can reflect on who you are, reflect on our need for you. Uh, and now as we've heard your uh, word read and as we uh, consider it, that we'll truly understand what it means to have faith, to trust in you. Amen. Uh, grab an outline if you haven't got one there on the back table there. It'd be helpful, uh, hopefully for you. Uh, if, if you haven't grab, grabbed one, um, it, there's an outline of where we're heading in the talk today. But I want to start off by asking you, have you ever had to change sides for anything? You're on one team or one side for anything uh, and you've had to go to another side in life. Is there any time you've had to change sides? I did that last night. I was watching the Crows-Port game. I didn't change sides to the Crows, nothing silly like that. I just decided to go back to the Swans because they won and so I changed sides and that's the beauty of having two teams to follow. But that's unimportant. That's not relevant. Sometimes we have big changes in life where we change sides or change our allegiances. World War II was a massive time for that, wasn't it? There were many uh, Germans who realised, well, they needed to change allegiances. They needed to change sides and were unhappy with what was going on. I don't know, have you ever saw the movie Valkyrie? Anyone see that movie? Tom Cruise making himself look awesome by being the hero again in all of his movies, that one. Um, and it's the story of a plot by the German um, military, uh, a resistance, to uh, assassinate Hitler before uh, the war ended. Uh, the writing was on the wall by that time, but they wanted to do it um, because they decided how... Um, disgraceful everything was now there's lots of debate about whether hollywood got uh that right and did they do it for the right reasons or not um but others did there's a lutheran pastor who's become quite famous um a german pastor at that time uh, dietrich bonhoeffer who uh was was killed in uh, in prison right at the end of the war because he was uh he was involved um, in being being a spy and dealing and and uh, and resisting against the Nazi regime because he was a thoroughgoing committed Christian who saw the atrocities and couldn't stand by and let let them happen. He had to change sides. Today's passage is about changing sides, or as. Uh, the title of the talk is Deciding to Trust God. That is going from not trusting God, changing to trusting Him. And if we do that, we want to have a reason to trust God, don't we? I don't know, wherever you are with God, for many of us, we do. And so today is about us having, reminding ourselves and having clarity and seeing what faith and trust is. Now you'll notice, I'll say faith, I'll say trust interchangeably in this talk. Because one of the things we, we really need to have clear in our head is they mean exactly the same thing. Faith is not some kind of mystical religious word. It means to trust into something, rely on something. 
And so if we're going to decide to trust in God, we need a reason to do it. And so we're going to see in, the, in uh, Joshua chapter 2, we actually can find a reason why we can trust in God. And that's where we're, we're heading today. So if you're not sure where you are with God or this is new to you, um, if you're willing to come along with us, you'll get the get clear picture on what faith is about and why Christians trust in God. And maybe a challenge for you. And for all of us, once again, can remind us with clarity what trust actually looks like. So let's do that together. And let's, uh, you can follow on on the outline uh, if that's helpful for you. Uh, but we start off by considering what, we, what do we need to remember as we look at this foreign book, as we kind of did last week. I want to say two things today. We need to remember how we go about reading Old Testament narratives, the narratives, stories, the history, the telling of it. How do we go about reading it and where we are in that story? Um, and I wanted to just point out to you in the booklets, if you noticed on the outline, next to the outline, there's uh, eight points, I think it's eight, um, of different tips and ideas for how you actually go about reading Old Testament um, narrative stories. These were the, um, uh, the kind of summarized tips that the Bible study leaders got when they did their training just to help us think about how you do it. And I thought that was so helpful that I'd give them to all of us. Um, and if you don't understand any of them or you want to ask, you can text me my numbers in the, um, in the booklet or ask a question after that way and we can, we can talk about them more because they're really helpful for helping us understand. And you can see there, if you've got that in front of you on page four, you see that in point three, it says that we're not always told the end of the narrative or story, what was good and bad. Um, sometimes what they do is they invite reflection and thoughtful pondering. That's what the, the Old Testament narratives do. You're not told this happened, so now this is what you're to think. The way they're written is for you to actually go, oh, I feel really uncomfortable about that. What does that mean? How do I understand that? How do I figure all that out? And that's what we're going to do today as we look at this curious character Rahab. And we do that by the second one I want to bring up in how we go about it is the last one there on, on, on page four. We always remember that Jesus taught that the Old, Old Testament scriptures, all of them, not just the narratives, but the Old Testament scriptures speak about him. So this isn't a story that's completely irrelevant to us. Because if we're followers of Jesus or we're considering whether what Jesus is all about, this story, while it doesn't necessarily seem like it to us right now, is ultimately in some ways pointing us to Jesus in the story that we have before us. And so we need to consider that. And we will, and you'll see how that plays out. And so often we see that there are patterns in Old Testament stories. So, for example, last week we started off and we saw that Joshua is, um, the, is the leader who is going to take the people into the promised land. And here's this big pattern. That's a big deal. Israel's going into the promised land. And this is a pattern for, well, other people going to trust Joshua as he does it. And then we, we realize in the New Testament that Jesus, the King, the Lord of all, God himself, promises that he will lead his people into the promised land, the eternal promised land. And so, in some ways, this Old Testament pattern helps us understand that. And that is what we see today. That the pattern of Rahab, what her character of faith looks like, is actually the pattern of faith 
the way we trust in Jesus today. And so if we spend some time looking at what happened, you and I can have clarity on what faith is, what it means to trust in Jesus. So that's how we're going to go about reading it. And where we are in the story is, well, Israel are on the brink of going into the promised land. And that's a significant, uh, a significant part in the story because God had promised it. So last week we had a whole, um, if you weren't here, we had a whole bunch of kind of maps to show you where they are. I've got a couple of them here. Um, if, if they come up, hopefully they are, they're there. And Abraham promised, uh, Abraham promised, God promised Abraham many, many years ago that God's people were going to have a land. They were going to have an offspring many, many offspring, they were going to be a massive nation and they were going to be a blessing to the whole world. That was God's promise. And you can see there, um, the orange little promised land there, that is what God had, that's the land that God had actually promised them. And they were on the brink of going in there. And so if we look at the next map, we see how they journeyed from there. That was the end of last week. If you remember, they were in Egypt where they, um, and and they escaped Egypt, the story of Exodus. They go through the, the Exodus, they cross uh, the Dead Sea, and then they go down to Mount Sinai. The people do their wicked thing while God gives them the laws and the, and, and, and the way that they're to relate to him in the promised land. They wander straight up to the promised land two weeks later. They check it out, and then they come back. And because of their wickedness, they wander around for 40 years in the desert. And right where that arrow is on the other side of the Jordan is where we are in the story. And so it's really, really significant. They're about to enter the promised land. The, the excitement, the anticipation you have when you're about to do something that you have been desperately waiting for is kind of the context of where they are. Except it's God who's promised that's going to happen to them and they're getting to do it now. And this is how the story starts. Have you got your Bible in front of you? Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies um, from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. They sent spies to check it out. This is really interesting as well, because they'd done this before. Yeah, they went up to the promised land two weeks after Mount Sinai and they sent spies in Numbers chapter 13, one of the, one of the books before Joshua. And while they're in the wilderness and they send these spies out, um, 12 of them went. Joshua was one of them. And they went there, they looked at it, they saw how powerful the cities were, how fortified they were, how strong they were, and they freaked out. They absolutely freaked out. There's no way we can have, God's promised this, but look at it. There's no way that this is our land. It's not ours. They're powerful. They're wicked. We're not going to be able to relate to them. It's all over. Except for Joshua and Caleb who said, God's promised it to us, so it's ours. It's interesting, back then, God had made the promise and they rebelled. And so the result was... Every single one of that generation died in the wilderness for 40 years. It was only the two who said God will do it, Joshua and Caleb, who hadn't died out. They died out all their 
uh, they buried all of their family out of those 40 years, all of that generation had died and only they, they were really old compared to everyone else now. This generation had gone. And so, where are we in the story? It's kind of um, Groundhog Day. <laughs> They're back here again. Uh, what are they going to do this time? Will they trust God? But then, the story is interrupted by the actions of a Canaanite prostitute. In chapter 2, we read about what she had done. And if we're going to truly understand this story, we're going to reflect on her interactions. And you can see in the outline, to understand this episode, we investigate Rahab, and we see three things there, and I've kind of snuck in a fourth one, actually. We see that God keeps his promises... We remember history. The one to sneak in is that uh, Rahab acknowledged that God is God. And the fourth one is trusting outside of the mind. And I'll explain what that means later. You see, when we look at Rahab, which we're just about to do, we'll see there's every reason to trust God if the facts back it up. And so have a look with me at what happens in this chapter. Just to remind us of what plays out in verses 2 to, two to 7 is, the king um, of Jericho was told that Israelites have come. So the king um, sends the message to uh, Rahab in verse 3, bring the men to me. But Rahab actually says, um, uh, yes, the men came to me in verse 4, but I did not know where they had come from. That's a little bit of a lie. So interesting. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went, she said. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But then we get this little side point. But she had, had taken them up from the roof and hidden them under the stalks of uh, the axe she had laid out on the roof. Rahab had rescued these spies. What do we make of all of this? Well, first of all, when we read these, um, these stories, what we don't do is get caught up in all the details of the narratives. These big epic dramas, you're supposed to see the big points and understand it from there. If you get caught up in the periphery, you kind of miss the point. It's kind of like if someone owes you, um, if you've got a relative that owes you $5 and you've got a mate that owes you $5,000, and all you ever do is talk about the person who owes you $5 and you can't pay, you can't pay your bills, but you hound and hound that person for $5, but you don't worry about the 5000 owed to you. You kind of miss the point of who owes you the most money, right? Like it doesn't make any sense to be obsessed about $5 when there's 5000 owing to you. It's good. We need to see the big picture and how the story is written to focus our attention. And what we actually see is the way that uh, this chapter is written is Rahab response to the spies is at the heart of how we understand everything that's going on and so we're going to break down verses 8 to 12 and as we do that we'll see what faith looks like so look at verse 8 we see there Rahab acknowledges as I've outlined God keeps his promises she says I know that the Lord has given you this land in a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. God promised you the land, she said. 
And notice how it's passed. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She's, she has recognized that this is going to be the promised land for the Israelites. The reason she trusts is because the object of her faith, what she puts her trust in here, is that the Lord is going to do what he says. Rahab believes that God keeps his promises here. That's the first thing. She says, God has given you all of this. And it's interesting that she goes on to say, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Hold that phrase for later, melting in fear. It's very interesting. The first step is to realize she believes, she she trusts it to be true. But not because she's just had some kind of epiphany, not because she's just gone, I just choose to believe it's true. If I think it's true, it will be true. Have you ever heard of that thinking of, if I believe hard enough, it will become my reality? Rahab didn't do that. Rahab didn't just go, you know what, I'm just going to have a leap into the dark and believe this and go against everything that I've lived in. I'm going to change sides. I'm going to change my allegiances just because I'm going to do a leap in the dark. The second point is, her trusting in God and in keeping his promises is because she's remembering, she's thinking back to what this God has already done, remembering history, remembering God redeems, rescues, saves his people. That's the second point. Look at verse 10. It's really interesting. We have heard, she said, so not only she knew about it, that the people had heard about what this God had done. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. She's saying, I I know your God's going to keep your promises because you were in slavery to the Egyptians. And this amazing thing happened that we know has happened. We've heard all about it. We know how you've been rescued. A little bit closer to home, those um, Amorite, um, uh, the two kings of the Amorites, who weren't great people, um, that whole, they were destroyed. We've, I've experienced it up close. What God promises to do, he does. She has every reason to trust that God will keep his promises. You see, our faith... Trusting in God keeping his promises, this is a key point, is not dissimilar to that. We trust in a God who has acted in history. I don't know whether that's a new idea to you. Some people think that Christianity is about trusting in a God where science doesn't give you the answers or trusting in something you've got no reason for. Never believe in Christianity on the basis of nothing. The reason we trust in God is because he's acted in history. We believe in these things that happen, but we believe in something bigger that these point to. The death and resurrection of Jesus, where he took our sin and conquered death, is what we remember and what we trust in. 
the same God keeping his promises to rescue, to lead us into the promised land by conquering death. That is the key. To trust that this happened, to have to think that it's reasonable and right and proper to think that Jesus did these things. So faith, to trust, step one is to believe God keeps his promises. Step two is to have every reason to believe in them because God has acted in history. I don't know if you've seen all the banners that have been coming around for the new musical that's coming out, the Mormons are coming. Have you seen those banners? The newspaper today, the advertiser, it was the front page. It had the top bit about the crows and then it had the Mormons bits. <laughs> Sorry, been this country. Uh, but the whole, the whole thing about the Mormons are coming. Now, it just got me thinking as I was thinking about we have faith in history. You can't do that with Mormonism. To believe in Mormonism, this is um, a brief summary idea, but to believe in that, you have to trust that Joseph Smith had a direct revelation from God and what he says is true. That's not believing something that happened in history. But that's what you've got to do to ultimately believe in all the tenets of Mormonism. You've got to believe that those things are true through his eyes. That's the reality. That's not how we think uh, the, the Christian faith is about because we actually rest in the history. So what happens next? We'll have a look at the third thing that she does in verse 11. She responds to what happened when they heard of this redemptive history. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God in heaven above and on earth below. What's the next thing you do? You acknowledge that God is God. That's what faith is. Not to just say, okay, that's true, that that happened. But you truly acknowledge that God is sovereign. That he is in control. That he will do what he will do and it is right. See there in verse 11? For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. He is the God of everywhere. The God of all time. So we can choose to reject him but he doesn't stop being God. And for Rahab, she had plenty of other options. There were plenty of other gods in, Can- in the Canaanite lifestyle. There were plenty of other ways. We have plenty more ways today, don't we? We don't need other gods out there. We can just build ourselves up as gods. We can build up the things that we love as gods. We can create our families as gods. We can do all sorts of things to make ourselves God. But true faith is to realise There's no other room for other gods because there's only one. And so that's what Rahab has done. There is only one God and he's in control. And then we have verse 12 and I've I've, uh, kind of outlined that in a weird way saying it's trusting outside of the mind. Let me show you what I mean by that. Rahab says in verse 12 to the spies, Now then, please, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. 
Rahab didn't just acknowledge in her mind that these things happen. Actual faith is active. It can't just stay inside your mind and believe it to be true. I think I spent a lot of my childhood thinking I was a Christian because I believed that God existed and Jesus was real. But it stopped in my head at some point. I had many friends at a school who would say, if someone asked them, oh, I believe in God, so I'm okay. But actual real faith is active. It's to ask God for salvation. Rahab knew that destruction was coming for her people and so she asked the Israelites, those, the only ones who could save her, the Israelites who followed the God who's the only God, save me. Just to acknowledge God is there is one thing, but true trusting in Him is to ask for forgiveness, is to live a life out of forgiveness. That's the challenge. And so it's trusting outside of your mind, it's using your mind, but then it's active. Now, you know how I said at the beginning, one of the ways we read Old Testament narratives and read the Old Testament is to see how it points to Jesus and how the New Testament talks about it? We can understand this with clarity because that's how the New Testament treats Rahab. She's brought up in the New Testament and she's brought up because of her faith. It's really interesting. Let's have a look at the two times that she's brought up because I think it gives us clarity. So we have a look on the screen there. I mean, Hebrews. In Hebrews uh, chapter 11... It's this big chapter and when the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to convince convince people to have faith, to trust in God by looking at all these great figures of the past in the Old Testament and Rahab gets brought up and uh, we read in verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She trusted in God and so she acted and rescued the spies. That's what she did. See, you can't say, I believe in God, and spend the rest of your life doing nothing in relationship to Him, because then you're not trusting in Him. But what's super important to understand, this isn't kind of like a backdoor way of going, oh, I need to be a good person to be right with God. Because that's not what it's saying, is it? It's just saying you trust God, so you respond to it. And so the writer of James makes that point for us. As we look at um, in James, we looked at James, if you remember, and there was that um, a, while, a while ago now. But when we looked at it, we saw in chapter 2 that James says, you have faith and faith must have works with it because it, it, otherwise it's dead. And he uses Rahab. He says, you see uh, that a, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You think, oh, hang on a minute, you're telling me that I've got to be a good person to earn God's favour? No, 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 because he uses Rahab to make the point. Verse, the next verse we see, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a di- different direction? He's saying Rahab trusted God and then responded accordingly. It wasn't Rahab did all these things so then God might say, you're okay with me. It's just you respond rightly when you trust in God. Has anyone ever been um, 
uh, at work and you've responded poorly to your boss? No, you all really respond well to your boss. You've never ever responded badly to your boss. That's impressive. Because if you respond unwisely to your boss, there's usually consequences, right? Because you haven't, you haven't done what's expected in the relationship. You don't, you don't get to just choose what you want to do when you want to do it. You have a job and you're supposed to do what your boss has told you to do. And that's not you earning favor like oh, I'm the best. It's your responsibility. You do it. When, we're, when we trust in Jesus, we're not saying to God, look at me, look at me, I'm better than someone else. We're saying, we love you for rescuing us. You are God. We want to live for you. Thank you for saving us. It's really important that we understand that distinction that Rahab teaches us. And so we had this pattern. We had this pattern of active faith. Christians believe in a promise. We remember that God has died, sent Jesus, the Son of God, to die for us and to rise again. We acknowledge Him as God and sovereign. And our active faith is to ask for salvation and to continue to trust in Him. I bring this up now because that is ultimately where I want us to land a little bit later. But what do we do with the rest of the story? We haven't finished the story yet. Remember how it was all about what's going to happen to the Israelites? Are they going to do the right thing? Well, uh, as we see in verses 22 to 24, at the end of the story, we see what happens. Have a look at how it plays out. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, uh, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, in verse 24, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. What about the Israelites? This time, they're starting in a more positive light. It's not going to be all happy sailing, we know. But this time, they decide they're going to trust in God's promises. But it's interesting, isn't it? That it comes about because of the faith of Rahab. See, how does this all fit into God's overall plan? Remember how at the beginning, what's the three thing God's promised? Anyone able to yell it out to me? Lob. What's lob, Seema? Land, offspring and blessing. They're about to go into the land. But what's really interesting about this story, before they go into the land, the whole blessing one. The Israelites are going to be a blessing to all the nations. But before they even get into the land, who's blessing who? It's, an, it's, a, it's a Canaanite prostitute who's showing the spies how to trust in God. That the blessing to all the nations is going to come through the Israelites. And even before that happens, we see that God's offer of forgiveness goes beyond and is available to all. The outsider 
the Canaanite, the prostitute, found God's grace. It's really important before we get into all the crazy stuff that happens in Joshua. There is always grace available to those who change sides. Always grace available to those who change sides. Forgiveness no matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're sitting here right now and you think, I'm the worst person here for sure. No one else knows what I'm like. God does. And he sent Jesus to the cross for you. And he wants you to hear that if you turn to his side, you trust in him, you're forgiven like everyone else. The offer is available to all. It's amazing. This reverse blessing is amazing. You see how we've seen that the other nations were melting in fear? It's totally flipped around. Because when, we are, when they first went out, the spies, guess who was melting in fear? The exact same words. It was the spies, except for Joshua and Caleb. In, a, in a Joshua chapter 14, verse 8, it says, they were melting with fear. And now, they're trusting in God. See, this, this great story as perplexing as it is, plays such a key part to what happens as they go into the promised land. There is destruction of wicked nations, of despicable um, immorality. But all the while framed in, if you turn back to God, there is forgiveness offered. God is willing to bring every tribe and every nation into his people eternally. There is not genocide in Joshua, as people suggest, because the offer of forgiveness is always there. So how do we wrestle with this passage? How do we conclude? Well, I've I've said there, um, um, to finish off in the outline, we need to make a choice. We need to remind ourselves of the choice we've made if we have already. We need to choose to follow Jesus. We need to decide where our faith or trust is, whose side it's on. And it needs to be an active faith. So I want us all to finish the talk, to go away today with clarity on what your faith should be, what it looks like. Maybe for someone today, it's clarity on that's the faith I don't have and I should have. And today, I do want to trust in Jesus. So let's remind ourselves to finish off. See, firstly, we believe the promises of God. Let's use one of the most famous verses of the Bible to make make this point. Look at John 3, 16 up on the screen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is a promise absolutely made by God. He loves us so desperately that he sent his most precious possession, his son who he gives all things to. He sent him to the cross so that we can have life forever with him. That is a spectacular promise. Our faith rests on that God loves us so much that Jesus died for us. 
Is your faith starting there? That that's what you trust in? Do you need to decide today that you do need to trust in that? What reason do we have to believe in that? Well, it's not because we're the best philosophizers or got great intellects. I'm sure you all do. Much bigger than mine, I'm sure. It's because Jesus has made a promise that our rejection of him has been dealt with. That he has conquered death. It's not because we feel like that's true. It's because it has happened in history. It's not because, well, I'm just going to believe in that because I've got to believe in something. It's not even because you've had an amazing experience of God, whether you have or you haven't, and as great as that have if you've had. It's because Jesus has died and then we receive him and we can experience God in all sorts of ways. But the reason for faith, not in a miracle, not in... Now, good things or despicable things or airy-fairy hoping, it's because of what God has done. Is that how your faith is shaped? Is that the first time that you've realized today that that's what Christians believe and maybe you can trust in Jesus' death for you? And it means it's not first and foremost you continually thinking to God, I need to do this to earn your favour. Whether it be be a super good attender at church, whether it be being a super moral person, even though our morality and our attendance at church may be physically, but sometimes we check out, isn't even up to that standard, even if we wanted to base it by that. That's all irrelevant. We respond with those things. It's not about our works though. It's about what God has given us we don't deserve in Jesus. Is that your faith? Thirdly, have you acknowledged, do you continually acknowledge that God is God? The God that Rahab described is our God. Now, sometimes we can say, Look at Joshua, how can we believe in a God like that? With everything that happens. Let me kind of take it up a notch. That's not the bigger problem that we need to wrestle with. There's an even less well-known verse in chapter 3, but a very powerful verse in verses 35 and 36 of John. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. This is, he, God is God. Now look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, that's great, that's good. But let's sit with verse 36 for a second. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. God is just, good, loving and righteous He wants us to be on his side. He desperately wants us to be on his side. How could we not think that if he's willing to send his son to the cross for us? But God is God. Wrath is real. 
Is your faith acknowledging that God is God? And lastly, is your faith active? We can't leave it in our minds. We can't leave it there. We can't just say, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus was real. Have you truly asked for forgiveness, for salvation, knowing that God has done that? And do you seek by his grace to live that out as you wait for that day when we are with him forever? Rahab is an amazing story. But the greatest story, the biggest story, is that day by day, maybe even today, God is saving people who trust in him. Is that you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for Jesus. We thank you that we can have life in him. We pray that we can live by faith. Amen.